title of today's message is Destroying Walls. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11 and going through verse 22. You want to turn there in your Bibles? I've had a lot of good things happen lately. Since I last spoke with you, I passed my state nursing boards called the NCLEX and have finally, finally received my nursing license from the state. It only took calling my congressman it only, and reporters and, and the hospital getting their uh, representative to the state to get in there and they finally pushed it through. So happy with that. I'm actually making nursing wages now. So just completed my orientation and I'm now a full-fledged ERRN. Even more than that, we have uh, really good news. As most of you know, my daughter Haley graduated the same weekend I did from nursing school. On Thursday, she passed her NCLEX. She was one of the few people in her class that passed it. So their, their class, for whatever reason, just had a very high failure rate. I think it's approaching almost 50%. But she passed it first time. And she's ecstatic for that. She's getting her, her license being held up a little bit, but I'm hoping she gets it tomorrow. But she has still accepted an RN position at Aurora Hospital in Kenosha. So we're very grateful for that. And I give all the glory, praise, and thanks to God for all of that. I mean, yeah, it was a lot of hard work, but it's, it was all God who got me through it. Going through nursing school has always been kind of one of those things that have always been in the back of my mind. Kind of a pipe dream. I've, I've kind of wanted to do it for a long time. And... Just never really had the opportunity, but I'm, I got blessed and the opportunity opened up and I jumped on it. And now I'm here. I can call myself John Oscar RN. And as I was praising God for all this in the last couple of weeks and giving thanks, I thought of where I had come from in life. I'm kind of retrospective that way. As an introvert, I, I often look backward and kind of analyze my life and, and where I've come from and realize that I'm actually, God has really blessed me in life. I mean, if you look at it just from a human perspective, I shouldn't be where I am today. Most of you know I grew up in a lar a largely in a medium to large city. My parents moved to Kenosha in 1974 from Hayward when I was four years old. So my dad can, could pursue his career as a state patrol officer. That didn't last very long. He got fired. And neither did their marriage, and they split up. Now, especially in the 1970s, it's not that much better today, but in the 70s and 80s, whenever a, a couple would divorce, the children almost always went with the mom, and the mom would almost always have to live almost in poverty at the time, and that's how we grew up. And because of this, I lived for a number of years in some very economically depressed areas. Some people would call it the ghetto or the hood. I was always the kid in the special line at school, the one who got the free lunch because we were so poor. Often I didn't have the appropriate supplies for school or nice clothes, and people would tease me for it. I didn't take school seriously at all. I dropped out and lived relatively homeless for about a year before I entered the Army, pretty much just crashing periodically on, on friends' couches and such. So looking back on it, from where I came from, I really started in the lowest of the low. I was used in my life to being almost a third-class citizen. 
I was very poor, very uneducated, and I was white, living among non-white people. Coming back to what we're going to read today in Ephesians, I kind of, because of where I came from, I kind of understand how a Gentile must have felt hanging around Jewish people in the early church. Many, maybe many of you have had similar experiences today, being that odd person out. If so, listen carefully to today's message. We're going to take Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 in smaller sections today. And we're going to start today talking about divisions in the early church. The racism that existed kind of under the radar. The scripture doesn't talk about it a lot, but it was real. It was there. So let's read about the overall condition first. The Apostle Paul speaking to those at the church of Ephesus. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done by the bodies, or that done in the body by the hands of man, remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from fellowship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And Father, I ask, Lord, that as we dig into the scriptures about the church in Ephesus, that we can see that many of the problems they went through are the same ones we go through today. Help us to apply the lessons the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us here into our modern life today. Because your word is timeless, Lord. It speaks to that time, and it speaks to the time we live in now. So help us to trust the truth of your word this morning, even when it pokes us in some very sensitive places. Father, I ask this in your name. Amen. <coughs> now, if you're not an avid Bible reader, you might be surprised to know that many of the same problems that plague us today plagued them 2,000 years ago, especially among those who were converting to Christianity. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. What was will be again. And the book of Acts that said that soon after the incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the Jewish people who thought themselves to be the one and only chosen of God had to start intermixing with Gentiles. And Gentiles in their eyes were, well, just lesser people. They, they weren't worthy to be brought in to this new church that they considered primarily Jewish. But it was not just a Jewish-Gentile thing. You also had Roman occupation. They were living under Roman rule, and if you were not a Roman citizen, really in that society you were nothing. A Roman citizen could see you in the marketplace, admire your cloak, walk up and say, I want it. And you'd have to give it to them. They really had no rights at all living in Roman rule. So do you see that there was a little bit of a recipe for some racism and hard feelings among the people groups there? Now fast forward about 2,000 years. I spent my teenage years in the 1980s, came to adulthood in the 1990s, with some military experience mixed in there. 
And it's largely my belief that during that time, racism was largely going away in America. It just wasn't talked about. You didn't see it as much. There wasn't the separation that you see in today's society. And there's still some problems. There are still some economically depressed areas that you would call ghettos. And I'm not minimizing that at all. But for the most part, the, the telling of racist jokes around white, white people telling racist jokes or dropping the N-word, um, that stuff was, was just going away. And that was a good thing. But then, a movement started in this nation roughly 10 years ago. And it's very insidious. It seeks to divide people. It's using the media to spread its message of division and hatred. It's using social media as its tool and lies as its source. and it seeks to forcibly control what the message is and even how you think or who you look to to determine the truth. Many of you may have heard the name George Orwell. He wrote a book called 1984 where he talked about a totalitarian society that governed every aspect of everything and every day. You'd even have a, a person on a screen walking you through exercises every morning in your house, and they would yell at you if you weren't trying hard enough. That seems to be where we're going now, and Orwell was almost prophetic in his book. He was just about 30 years off. And let me be very blunt. I think what's going on right now is satanic. It's an attack against the people of this nation and the church in particular. It seeks to destroy us as a people so it can destroy us as a nation. I don't know how many of you are following some of the, the latest news and whether you like him or dislike him, but Joel Rogan is under attack by that cabal of deception. If you don't know who he is, he has the largest podcast in the world, has very interesting people on it. He's not saved, a lot of swearing, different things like that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not recommending this from the pulpit, I'm just letting you know. But he's had the courage to speak about many of the government overreaches with COVID. And they're doing everything they can to destroy him in the public eye, even taking a video of him quoting others using the N-word and used it to call him a racist taking it rough, all out of context. And it's just one example of how this latest movement in our nation is demanding compliance. And if you don't comply with them, they'll destroy you. We as Christ ambassadors, we need to be different than that. We need to stand for truth. Now, if you hold racist ideas... I'm going to be very blunt with you. you. need to repent. You need to repent. If you're here in this church, maybe you need to spend some time at the altar and beg that God changes your heart and mind. Because if you don't, you're going to be very disappointed when you see Jesus because he's a person of color. I don't know if any of you have seen a person who grew up in the Middle East, but they're pretty darn tan. Hatred of people based on skin color or a different culture is antithetical to the message of Jesus and of the gospel. We need to remember that this is, the gospel is God who had no reason to love us 
coming and loving us anyway. God had every reason to hate us. He created us and we turned our back on him. We thumbed our nose on him. We flipped obscene gestures at him, more or less. He has every reason to hate us, destroy us, and forget we ever existed. But God saved us anyway. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He didn't come to just save people of European descent, not just the white folk. Jesus came for the entire world and everyone who was in it, including all cultures, including all races. I say that with a quote, and I'll explain that in a minute. And I understand that if you grew up with these ideas, I, I get it. Maybe your mom, your dad, grandparents, friends, look down on people of different backgrounds. As I said, I'm in the same boat. It took a lot of the military to kick all that out of me. We got to be all the same color, green. And then I came to Christ and I discovered the truth. And listen very carefully to this. There's not one, more than one race. That's, that's a lie of the enemy right there. There's a human race. We are all created with what is called the Imago Dei, the image of God stamped upon us. The eternal spirit residing in these bags of flesh and bone. The amount or lack of pigment in your skin is irrelevant to God. Therefore, if it's irrelevant to God, it should be irrelevant to us. Martin Luther King said in his famous I Have a Dream speech, he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. That, by the way, is the message of Jesus, too. We are all one people under him as our God. There is no black or white, slave-free, Jew or Gentile, just one people washed in the blood that he shed for us on the cross. Let's continue in Ephesians. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace. He who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. For through him we have access to the Father by one Spirit. As I was praying, as I was meditating on the scripture this week, I was thinking that one of the most dramatic things that happened when Jesus died was a curtain in the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. Why did that matter? What, 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 is, what difference does that make to what we're talking about this morning? What was this, as Paul calls it, the dividing wall of hostility? If you remember a few weeks ago, I explained that we are spiritual beings having a temporary flesh experience while we are here on this earth. 
Jesus was very specific in John 3 when he said, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. That is why you must be born again. After the fall of man, our flesh continued to live, but our spirit separated from God. In essence, and in every way that is important, everyone thereafter was born dead, disconnected from the thing that was going to give them life. And not only that, but they inherited a spiritual disease of sin that dragged them away from the true life that is found in God. Humanity's spirit was disconnected from that source of life. Now fast forward a few thousand years to the time of Moses. Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and God tells him to set up a building called the tabernacle. You can see this in Exodus. The tabernacle is to be the meeting place between God and humanity, the place where God's spirit will dwell. And everybody, when you read about this, your, your eyes kind of glass over because there's so much detail, and you're like, what does any of this matter? What, what, what does this mean for me today? Well, when you look at the tabernacle, everything within it had significance. Now watch this. Remember, the tabernacle was supposed to be a place where God's Spirit resided on earth. God's Spirit resist, resided in a very special place within that tabernacle. The Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. However, that area was closed off by a curtain, preventing anyone from being getting too close to God and dying because their sin would cause them to be destroyed. That curtain was a dividing wall between God and man, a wall of hostility, if you will, showing God's hatred of sin. And it was a constant reminder that no matter how well you lived your life in obedience to the law, you could never actually get close to God. Because all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. Now a few hundred years pass. A king named David starts making preparations to build a temple. And his son Solomon becomes king and builds that temple. And they mirror it in a way that the tabernacle was to be laid out. It should be noted, God never asked them to do that. And I'll show you why in a minute. If we fast forward again, Jesus dies on the cross saying, it is finished. Then what happened? Tombs were open. The sky darkened. There was an earthquake. And that temple curtain, this thing was two to three stories high, as thick as your hand, and spread and wider than this building, was torn in half from top to bottom. The dividing wall of hostility was destroyed. It would have been impossible. They said you could hook up teams of horses to either side of this curtain and have them run and pull as hard as they could. They could not have torn this curtain. But God just went... It was like God reached down and replied to saying, Jesus or to Jesus saying, it is finished, to say, indeed it is, and rip that curtain apart. So, the question, where did God go? If he was supposed to exist in this area, where did he go? He ripped the curtain. There's no more holy of holies. Where did he go? Well, back to the tabernacle. What was a tabernacle made of? The outside coverings. 
animal skins. All made out of animal skins. God very, gave very, very specific. If you've read um, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, you know very, very specific instructions on how to build this tabernacle. Very specific instructions that this was supposed to be made of animal skins. Not a brick and mortar temple, but animal skins. Now why was so much detail being put into specifically saying animal skins? Well, if you think about it for a moment, God was showing us his heart. God was showing us what he wanted in the first place. The tabernacle was to show us God's spirit residing in an animal skin structure. Do you see the symbolism here? Do you think that God was speaking even back in Exodus what he wanted with humanity to reside in these animal skin structures we call the human race? It all pointed to what Jesus was going to do when he said it is finished. Reading again, he said his purpose was to create in himself one new man. And that word for man in Greek is not gender, it means humanity. One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Now, it's a vital message for us to understand and live by today. What God did was destroy the walls of hostility that existed between him and the rest of humanity. Now, if that is God's plan, shouldn't we be about the same thing? destroying walls of hostility in our culture, speaking against the forces that would try to call us racist for no particular reason. We were doing that in the church when I got saved. Promise Keepers did great, huge events based on racial reconciliation. And you may not have seen blatant racism up here in the northern part of our country, but I was stationed in the south. When I went to church, Occasionally down there, there were still churches that had whites only on their door. Even back in the, in the, in the 80s and 90s. The churches down there for decades perpetuated the racism. In fact, the Ku Klux Klan considers themselves Christian warriors, preserving God's prescribed way of doing things. Whites on the top and everyone else bears the curse of Ham and therefore should be subjugated. I'm going to talk about that, just in case this is something you may have learned, or maybe you might come across as somebody says, well, as Christians, we should, should keep people of color down. The curse of Ham comes from what's called proof texting. It's essentially taking the Bible and making it say what you want to prove your point, but not what it actually says. Now, it comes all the way back to Genesis chapter 7 and 8, after the floodwaters recede, Noah plants the crops, gets out of the ark, animals leave the ark, start spreading throughout the world. Noah plants crops, including a vineyard. He drinks wine from the vineyard. He gets sloppy drunk. He gets so sloppy drunk, he falls asleep naked in view of others. Well, his son Ham sees him, and he laughs at him. 
says, oh, look at the old man, sloppy drunk. And he goes and he tells everybody else in their little family. And Noah's other two sons take a blanket and walk backwards and cover their father's sin and don't laugh at him but honor him for being their father. Well, Noah wakes up and he hears what Ham did and he places a curse on his descendants that they will always serve the descendants of the other two brothers. And you look at the ancestries of the Bible, the descendants of Ham went largely to Africa to settle. And this is how churches for hundreds of years justified African slavery. Stupid, isn't it? Pretty dumb. It's a Christianese version of racism. But it's garbage. It's a lie of Satan. Jesus came to save the entire world. There is no difference. God desires to inhabit all people, regardless of this color of their skin or their cultural background. We are all precious in his sight. So let's look at the glorious truth now in the book of Ephesians. Verse 19 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. A couple points. Who is a cornerstone? What is the cornerstone? Is it your opinion? Is it what the culture tells us is important? Is it what the government tells us to believe? No. Christ is the cornerstone. And that means everything. When you build a foundation, if you're going to build a house, the first brick you lay has to be perfect or the whole structure becomes unsteady. That is why Christ is called that cornerstone. He is our perfect foundation. And therefore, his words, his opinions, and his thoughts, they should be the beginning, the middle, and the end of every opinion and belief that we have. Because Jesus wants a bride that shines his light and message to a lost and dying world that is doomed without him. Let's all rise. In verse 21, it says, In Jesus the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. That's everyone. Everyone who has come to Christ shares the same Spirit that we do. Let's remember to treat them as brothers and sisters and commit ourselves to tear down dividing walls of hostility that the enemy keeps trying to erect in our time today. Let us stand
for the biblical truth that God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you search us to know us this morning. I confess I grew up listening to racism in my home. I grew up with racist thoughts. I laughed at racist jokes. I may have even dropped the N-word a few times. Father, I repented of that a long time ago. And I ask, Father, you continue to convict me of it today. I ask, Father, that you just sweep us, that you search us and you know us. Help us to be a people that has open hands to all people. That we don't consider a, pre a people less than us. That we don't consider a people beyond redemption. But that you help us to show the love of Jesus Christ to every single person we meet.